This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and this week on Behind the Headlines, we are celebrating Sunshine Week. Now, technically, Sunshine Week is next week, and if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, because it's spring break time, that's not exactly what Sunshine Week is about. It's about the sunshine law and transparency. So today, Lauren Gibbons, who is a political reporter out of Lansing for MLive, and Robin Herman, she is shareholder at Butts Along the Law Firm, as well as general counsel for the Michigan Press Association. So as we celebrate Sunshine Week, what are we talking about? We're talking about transparency and how bad the state of Michigan scores in that particular arena. So let's jump into it. As I said, our guests today, Lauren Gibbons from MLive and Robin Herman, shareholder from Butts Along, and my co-host, as always, Vice President of Content, the man, the myth, and the one who brings us the warm weather, John Heiner. <laughs> Good morning, Eric, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. And that's exactly where I was going because uh, you know my serotonin levels and mood uh, rise and fall with the weather in Michigan, and uh, it's fantastic weather we've been having. The sun's out, and uh, I'm going to make a, a really corny segue here and tell you that there's a saying that um, sunshine is the best antiseptic, and uh, I'm going to try to use that to clean my house this spring. See how that works, but. Uh, in the business we're in, in, in journalism, uh, of course, the saying has to do with, you know, shedding light on into the dark corners of uh, the human experience uh, helps people with understanding, helps our democracy. And coming up in Michigan, uh, we have a themed podcast this week, but next week is Sunshine Week. Um, Sunshine Week was started in 2005 by the American Society of News Editors to celebrate and educate around transparency laws and openness laws that uh citizens, not just journalists, but citizens use to hold government accountable, uh, to look at the actions of government officials and institutions. And uh, we celebrate that every year. Um, I usually have a column or, um, you know, podcast is a new thing this year. It's the first time we have a chance to talk about it. But uh, it's all things considered, it's, it's a fairly young um, phenomenon because the Freedom of Information Act and the Open Meetings Act of Michigan were not uh, instituted in law until 1976. And that's not that long ago because I was working at my high school paper in 1976. So these are fairly recent developments. Um, but it really changed the way that government um, had to be accountable to its citizenry. And of course, these are great tools for journalists as well. So um, we want to discuss that, the state of openness in Michigan and transparency today. And our guests from our M Live political team in Lansing, Lauren Gibbons, reporter. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Welcome, and it's great to have you. And then from the Butzel Long Law Firm, we have a the shareholder at Butzel Long, uh, Robin Luce Herman, who also is the general counsel for the Michigan Press Association and is, of course, one of our leading advocates and educators and resources that newspapers around the state uh, use in doing our jobs. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Chad. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. So what is the weather report on sunshine in Michigan right now? Uh, Lauren, where are we at? I, well, I'll start by saying um, 
this it's a dubious honor, but the Center for Public Integrity says that Michigan is one of the, if not the worst states for transparency in, in the country, largely because our governor's office and legislature are not subject to uh, FOIA and Open Meetings Act uh, laws. So there, there seem to be over the years a lot of efforts, or at least the bills introduced, but, but where we stand right now in Michigan in terms of reform or changes? Yeah, that uh, that Senate or excuse me, that Center for Public Integrity report came out in 2015, and it's about the same. We're still uh, uh, we're still pretty low on the totem pole in terms of where we're at uh, with transparency around the country. And um, I would say that there are loopholes in the FOIA law, but I think it's more like a black hole. Um, yeah. as opposed to a loophole. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the governor's office, the lieutenant governor's office, and both chambers of the legislature are completely exempt. Um, there's no, uh, there's no, if, if people ask um, for public records, they don't have to give them to the public. Um, they, they do historically um, at least say that they will disclose voluntarily financial records, at least the House and Senate business office say that, but there's nothing actually holding them to that. Um, not to mention uh, the legislature and governor are not um, beholden to financial disclosure laws as they are in many, many other states. All but two states have financial disclosure laws that uh, showcase when um, you know, someone has a financial stake in a business or um, some other interest um, that could show the public, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't be voting on this particular issue if your business stands to gain from it. So it's a, it's a lot of, um, a, a lot is going on in Michigan uh, that transparency advocates have said for many, many years, we need to fix this, but it hasn't uh, progressed in the legislature at this juncture. That said, uh, House Speaker Jason Wentworth has said that ethics and transparency reform is one of his uh, top priorities in the legislature. Whether he's able to succeed where others haven't remains to be seen. Robin, you've been at this a while too. What would it take to wrest away from the people who hold the power over this? I mean, to get some of these rights back into the public hands. And uh, for instance, I know that there's talk of a petition drive for the 2022 ballot um, for this very for this very cause, which is to, to, to bring transparency to the governor's office and the legislature. Is this the only recourse that we have? Um, or are there avenues through courts that, that newspapers or other citizen groups can pursue? Um, because it seems like we've been we've been stuck in neutral on this for a long time. Well, um, <laughs> so it, it's fairly clear that many um, in the legislature think that the only people that care about this are the media. And so, you know, with that premise, um, it's very difficult to uh, encourage them. They, they have you know, they're not as encouraged to pass reform. I, I would point out that, you know, um, back when the Flint crisis hit, um, there was a fairly quick reaction um, in the House to pass reform, which the Senate said no. 
Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about this with um, in open government seminars, which you know I do a lot of um, advocacy work with the public, um, I tell citizens the reason we're in this pickle is because you're not telling your elected officials that this is important to you. And, you know, in my mind, um, the only way to really get serious about this is through, you know, some sort of ballot initiative or for the citizens of Michigan to say, we're not going to take this anymore um, to, 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 quote a, to quote a song because um, uh, th there just isn't enough will in the legislature, at least over the last 10 years to get this done. And the one thing that I would add to what Lauren was talking about is we, we don't have strong conflict of interest um, statutes in Michigan either. So, you know, between those three things, um, you know, we're, we're really in the dark um, more than many other, many other states. I think you make a good point about citizens and, it, there was a lot said in the past year or two about lack of trust in government and government institutions. But when it comes to things like this, it seems to be this blanket sense of trust that the people, at your, and I'm talking about the township level or your city level, school board level, um, you know, not necessarily the legislature, but, you know, they know what they're doing or this is complicated stuff. And so citizens don't, I don't think, get educated on what's happening in their communities, that sense of civics that's involved. But it's not until someone wants to go get a document because their neighbor's got a construction project going on or something like that, that they find out that it's really that the I think the overwhelming sense that I've gotten from working in the business I'm in for 40 years is that government officials have a proprietary sense over information. It's theirs uh, that they know best. And they, they tend to be defensive or offended when people question what they're doing. And I think that's one of the underpinnings of democracy was based on citizens inspecting the work of the people elected to represent them. Um, but there's almost a sense of disdain sometimes. Um, and, and the thing that people don't understand too is the cost that's involved if you go to try to engage government institutions around getting documents or because, you know, they'll call it like a fishing expedition, but I think the ability to go even look is uh, I don't think there's a lot of I don't think there's a lot of knowledge at a citizen level until they get personally involved. One other thing that you mentioned, we were talking about the petition drive, uh, and Lauren, you you know you might want to comment on this too. It sure, sure seems that the legislature pays attention when there's a petition drive, because in the past several years they've tried to head off, uh, they proactively acted to head off petition drives. Can you talk about this? What what's happening with this petition drive and what the reaction might be from the legislature? Sure. Um, yeah, we haven't seen the exact proposal yet. Uh, it's being um, pushed by, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it's being pushed by Progress Michigan, which is a progressive advocacy organization in Lansing. Um, they've long been proponents of FOIA reform, and um, they're anticipating releasing more details about the proposal um, on Sunshine Week, uh, sometime during Sunshine Weekend. Um, They've, they've said so far that they are hoping to just make it a blanket, you know, allow the legislature and governor's office to be FOIAable, include them in the Freedom of Information Act. And that's different than what policies have been 
put forward in the legislature so far. They're interested in having a separate uh, legislative open records act um, in addition to the Freedom of Information Act. And there's a few reasons that they've put forward for why they think that makes more sense. But at the end of the day, if such a policy were to go through, um, any appeals, if a legislative record is denied, would not go through the courts. It would go through a separate process um, that is put in place by the legislature. And I think some, you know, Progress Michigan and some other transparency advocates have had a little bit of concern with that. Um, and I also just really wanted to quickly uh, touch on what you said about um, citizens, you know, not necessarily understanding the FOIA process or not knowing where to get started. What I've heard from people <clears throat> is there's a lot of interest, uh, but it's very hard, uh, honestly. There's a lot of barriers to open records that I think a lot of citizens don't necessarily know how to get past. Uh, the cost, the difficulties, just understanding what documents will have the information they're looking for. Um, you know, I think a lot of uh, citizens that I have talked to over the course of many years reporting on this, um, a lot of people start with their schools and local governments because that's, you know, the entryway for a lot of people. But especially at the state level, uh, once once you start getting into the weeds on these things, it's complicated even for journalists to figure out where things are. And part of that is because it's so difficult to navigate Michigan's FOIA law and it's so difficult to get that information because it's expensive and oftentimes people don't wanna give up the information. Would would my guests and Eric indulge me for a second? Uh, I'm not gonna, Eric, I'm not gonna go into conspiracy land, but I'm gonna do my second favorite thing, which is John's pet rants um uh, <laughs> so i've been talking for 10 or 15 years i think the first time i, I proposed this in a column as an editor was was 12 15 years ago something called that i call the must issue law and i, I drew the comparison that in michigan in many states if someone wants a, a gun license you must issue i mean if they walk in and they're on two feet and they can pay the fee they they, they get a license for a gun no questions asked and I, I kind of made an analogy that I think information, I mean, Michigan, apparently we treat information more dangerous than a gun because you can, it's not that easy to get information. And I, I thought that we should pass common sense laws that say, here's a list of things that citizens can ask for or journalists that automatically are complied with, that must be complied with within a certain period of time. Because right now the onus is put you know, the law says we can have it, but then we have to go fight for it. Nobody really understands how hard that fight is. And you make the, you make your requests and they, 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 they take the, the full period they can take, takes you 15 days to get an answer. And then they say it's too broad. And then they bill you $2,000 for a document. And it, it's, it's really onerous. And so, you know, you don't have to respond to this, Robin, or, or like what the likelihood that John's dream would ever happen. But, you know, what's it going to take I mean, I don't think it's just enough to say that the legislature and this governor's office should be subject to these because you still have the problem in the process. So, Robin, you go do seminars and you do try to educate people. But what do you tell them about navigating the system? That it's complicated, time consuming um, and that, you know, you need to advocate for yourself with your local government officials, because going back to a point that you made before, you made the arrogance point, 
right? We see too many public bodies that are arrogant. There's also ignorance. Mm -hmm. I mean, one other thing is there's no mandatory training um, for public officials. Um, I've actually been to some training um, and the one that comes to mind is for the Open Meetings Act and they did no training on closed sessions, right? Um, and um, those um, members of public bodies that haven't had training um, are oftentimes relying on lawyers who feel that it's their job to keep as much information from the public as possible, right? So you, you know, you have this sort of perfect storm of holes in the statute, a cumbersome process, um, ignorance or arrogance, and, um, uh, you know, a system that relies heavily on the fact that um, no one's going to sue the public body um, for, for violations, and that if they simply stonewall for a little while, it'll go away. The, the one other thing that I think is that underpins this um, and that Lisa McGraw at MPA is fond of saying is we've already paid for these records. As right. taxpayers, we have funded public bodies to gather information that's required by statute, by retention laws. Why do we have to pay double for information that they're legally required to compile that they have um, or they should have access to and provide it to the people that paid for it. If I, you know, um, if, if I have uh, a brief that I did on behalf of my law firm and they say, uh, you know, one of my partners says, I can I have a copy of that brief? I'm saying, no, you have to submit a FOIA request <laughs> for it and I'm going to charge you by the page and I'm going to charge you for the time that I looked for the document. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ludicrous. I'll tell it. it's a true story. Um, working up in Bay County and the Bay City Times when I was there, we did a whole, it was years of watchdog reporting where we we just took an attitude. We were going after documents because we could and really yielded some awesome stories. We, we won a sweepstakes award up there from the AP. But the uh, general counsel for the, the county board or the county executive told us, I'm going to deny everything you ask for. And then I'm going to make you appeal. And then I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you, a, she told us what she was going to do and she did it. Um, and it's just flabbergasting. And that's where I came up for this idea with like a must issue and like I'm thinking you go to the Secretary of State's office to renew your tabs on your car and they hand you a laminated card that says this is what you're entitled to this is how you ask for it and you have five days to get it and this is what it costs and if they don't comply there's there's sanctions and so I know I'm in wonderland you know end rant but <laughs> my retirement banquet I'm going to bring up must issue for public information I guarantee you because it drives me crazy yeah, um, and I think it's, I think uh, Robin brings up a great point that you could be, you could be an expert at FOIAing a certain state agency or a certain county, or you could be an expert at getting court records from the court in your area. And then a court across the state or a county on the other side of the state or even your neighboring county, they could have a completely different policy. They could have a completely different interpretation of the same state law that they're all subject to. And 
and that's not even getting into the difficulties of dealing with universities. Um, I know that, you know, I've had personal experience covering Michigan State. Um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of great reporting from people trying to get stuff from U of M. It's, it's extremely complicated. But, um, and to, to one thing that you said, John, um, the thing is, uh, you know, journalists kind of become experts at this because we know that things are in those documents that are of import to the public. So even if the public doesn't necessarily know what's in there or doesn't necessarily uh, you know, have the resources or the knowledge to understand how to look for public documents themselves, there's clearly a public interest in what comes out of those FOIAs, what comes into the stories. Um, and I think we saw that recently um, with the separation agreements from three you know, high ranking state officials in um, two of the departments that everyone has been watching during the COVID-19 pandemic, DHHS and the unemployment agency. And uh, that those records wouldn't have, you know, probably not have been made public without FOIA requests from several journalists in the state. And so you saw a public interest in those documents. Um, you saw a lot of public interest in those stories and, you know, whether or not, you know, a, random citizen would necessarily know to look for those separation agreements. I think a lot of random citizens certainly care what was in those. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MLive podcast. I'm John Heiner, and our guests today are Robin Luce Herman, General Counsel for the MPA and shareholder at Buckle Long, and Lauren Gibbons, a political reporter at MLive Lansing office. Um, coming back to that conversation, and I, was, I wanted to touch on this, Lauren, I'm glad you brought up the separation agreements for Robert Gordon and the unemployment director, and I think also the, the number two at the, the health department as well. And I'd like both of you, uh, Robin and Lauren, to talk about this. This is the first time that I've seen, at least uh, to this degree, that what we see in, we're a privately held company, our news company. So, and I've been in management a long time, so non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement, you know, when people are leaving, those are fairly common, but in the public realm, is this, is this a troubling development that you could start to use legal language that, that somehow runs counter to openness laws to hide government activities? Um, I'll, I'll let Robin go first. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think it's a new trend. Um, I've seen it um, throughout my career. You know, um, it isn't exposed as much because you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a case I'm handling right now uh, at, uh, involving a school board, there was an agreement Um but everybody knew that this person, you know, it, it was leaving. And so the agreement was um, requested. Um, so I, I don't think that it's new. Um, and it's part, in, in my opinion, it's part of this arrogance issue. Why does the public need to know about this? This is just regular business stuff. Um, but what it does highlight is um, the need to close what Lauren referred to as the black holes, mm -hmm. right, um, in Michigan law with respect to both the legislature and the governor's office. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in upper management. I, I have never had a separation agreement that required me to not speak about something. Um, but I do think that, um, it's hard to say what the extent of this is in state government right now because the legislature and the governor's office are exempt. So, you know, they could be using these things all the time. We have no idea. The reason that the information regarding DHHS and the unemployment agency were made public was because of the FOIA process, because those state agencies, while the governor's office isn't subject to it, the state agencies are. And so, um, you know, to see uh, three recent uses of the separation agreement, you know, does suggest that apparently they're willing to do it. Um, but, you know, we, we don't have, you know, explicit access to separation agreements that could be in the governor's office. Um, and I, I think when, once you get into the confidentiality issue, they are, you know, closing the book on a chapter that I think a lot of Michigan residents would like to know. Perhaps they would like to know right. why someone who was uh, issuing the bulk of the COVID-19 orders for the last several months resigned rather abruptly. Um, you know, and I think that that is a story that a lot of people would be interested in hearing. So, I, I think when it comes to that confidentiality, in addition to, um, you know, the the payments obviously made a lot of news as well, but that confidentiality piece is very interesting because, you know, now legally we won't hear that story because they have a legal obligation to not talk about it. Well, it just tell you in Washington Post slogan, there's democracy dies in darkness. Well, I'll tell you what grows in darkness is mistrust and conspiracies. I'll give you some of mine, but um, as Eric knows, but here you have a, a during a very volatile period where there's a lot of um, attention being paid to the governor's activities and orders regarding COVID, the politics around that, the, the business community, um, you know, in the let them play sports groups and every, you know, the, the politics around this were, were very heated. And you're basically buying the silence of somebody. Now, if you're Robert Gordon, maybe you say, you know, I just need a soft landing and I, I disagree and don't want to do it publicly. But guess what? You're a public servant. This is if you, whether you're an appointee or you're elected, you're working for the people of Michigan. And what's happened with these agreements is it's it's you know, it stopped our ability to, to watch the government process in action, how decisions are made, why and to hold people accountable. And it, I think that, that the mistrust um, grows in that environment. I also think it gives political opponents, we're, we're trying to fight disinformation and misinformation. Truth and light is what's gonna help in, in that case, again, and rant. But um, I, I have not seen this in Robin. I, you know, thanks for pointing out, and I respect that you do, that you see these a lot because you work a lot in this environment. Uh, but these high profile ones are, are really corrosive in my view. They are. And I think there's one thing also to point out, John, is that, you know, our appellate courts have made very clear that a public body cannot contract away FOIA. So you can't reach an agreement that says, I'm not going to disclose this under FOIA. That is impermissible under the law. And it actually started um, 
in the context of collective bargaining where the union wanted to keep uh, information regarding complaints or grievances, that sort of thing from the public eye. And the court says, said you can't do that. So the, the problem here is finding out that there's a contract. And I think it's important to point out that um, here the agreements were turned over because notwithstanding the confidentiality agreement, you can't withhold the record. Well, now he's, Gordon is contractually obligated to not speak publicly. Right. It's sort of like the, the agreements that Trump made with these accusers, um, Stormy Daniels and uh, who the other one was, but that they can't speak. Right. You know? And so they're enjoined from in telling their side of the story or ever speaking about that. So I, I think that's uh, that's troubling and it's unfortunate. Look, for both of you, you've heard my one of my pet proposals, but what would you do to improve the climate in Michigan and the laws in Michigan if you could have one or two things, um, both one from an attorney's perspective and one from a reporter's perspective? Um, I can start. I mean, I, in my, you know, conversations with other reporters around the country, um, both, you know, friends and, you know, colleagues in other states that do similar work, um, everyone is always just completely baffled. They're like, you can't FOIA anything from the legislature. I cannot even imagine what, I, I, I can't even imagine what FOIAing the legislature would look like because <laughs> I've come up through Michigan politics, um, you know, this whole time. So we've all kind of developed other ways to get access to information via sources or, you know, just other documents through state agencies that are available to us. But I think that being able to FOIA the legislature for me as a Capitol reporter would be huge. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, in talking to a lot of transparency advocates and uh, in 2019, uh, my colleague Taylor and I uh, did quite a, a quite a lengthy investigation into financial disclosure and conflict of interest laws. Um, and, and Michigan is, uh, you know, one of only two states that doesn't have some form of financial disclosure in the country. And that seems to me, you know, if, if 48 out of 50 states are doing it and they're doing it without much uh, uproar or upheaval, it se certainly seems like Michigan could do the same. And, and when you mention that, out of those 48 states, I can probably name 10 off the top of my head that are not known for being very progressive states politically or socially. So it kind of boggles the mind that, that you know, Michigan is, is in the ranks of the, the hall of shame in that count. So Robin. You know, I, I agree with what Lauren says. I think the one thing that I would add is um, I would like to see um, stiffer penalties for violations. Um, to, I mean, newsrooms are not bringing these cases as frequently as they have in, in the past. Um, and, um, well, at least over the last 10 years, I think that there's an upward trend. Um, and 
if the, if the public bodies were going to suffer more penalties, then maybe they would start erring on the side of providing the documents rather than erring on the side of withholding everything they can on the basis that um, no one's going to sue them. Yeah, we had a case in Grand Rapids a couple of years ago, and this will illustrate what you're saying, is we had a police, I don't know if he was a lieutenant or captain or something, anyways, he was on his way home from a party, uh, alcohol involved, crash, police come out, say, oh, it's the, you know, so-and-so. So instead of being arrested, he got a ride home, you know, and, and so what we wanted was the phone records, the phone recordings from the calls from the officers in the field back to the, the station house. And of course, the city fought us on that. And um, I think, as it turned out, the, the guy was married to an assistant prosecutor, and it, it was just kind of a nest. And anyways, long story short, we win, but our, our legal bills are $75,000. And I imagine, and MLive is one of the larger news organizations in Michigan, imagine a smaller paper, uh, a small town paper that's, that's like Traverse City that's fighting for school records is that you lose, you pay. And so in this case, uh, we won and the city of Grand Rapids had to pay like some like 72,000 of our bill. But then it's kind of bittersweet because the city, the, the taxpayers of Grand Rapids are paying for the sins of the city, the city leaders. So um, I, I can just tell you from a newspaper perspective, you know, money's tight and uh, staffing is down and it, it, these things take a lot of energy and time and cost. So in that environment, we don't, we're not holding the, the winning hand in a lot of cases. I think what it comes down to is um, a lot of the information that's revealed through FOIA is uncomfortable. It's not, um, it's not something that's necessarily pleasant or something that a public official um, would like to see made public. Um, but, but that's part of our role as journalists and, you know, citizens, uh, you know, regardless, it's not, it's not just the media that cares about these issues. Certainly in that instance, that is a community wide issue that uh, obviously was of a lot of import to everyone in the community. So, you know, if, if the laws are, um, you know, not being enforced in a way that allows public officials to try and shield that potentially uncomfortable information um, from people who are trying to share that information more broadly. Uh, I think that I think that that's obviously an issue, and that's something that you know should be addressed. Yeah, and just just another point with respect to that, Lauren. You know, I talked before about about ignorance, right? Um, part of the reason that information becomes embarrassing or uncomfortable is because the public officials aren't um, ne necessarily executing their positions, understanding that the public has a right to know information. I mean, it's it's when they're like, oh, we, we need to keep this, you know, there's no reason for anyone to want to see this information. And it's, and as John called it, proprietary. That's when it really becomes bad. If you go in with the idea that, hey, everything we do is subject to public scrutiny mm -hmm. and disclosure. And so we need to approach it from that perspective, then you're in a much better position to balance, for example, the public's right to know um, about the performance 
with, you know, issues like mental health issues or medical issues, right? You can protect both interests. It's just that when you don't start off from that vantage point, that you sort of dig yourself a hole as a public official, and you're fighting to prevent embarrassing information from coming out. Yeah, and we discussed, this is where education is important, and you kind of hate to rely on the goodwill of politicians all the time, but we were doing a lot of reporting in Kalamazoo, and I want to call out Brad Devereaux, a reporter over there, has done a really nice job. But the, in their training for incoming city councilmen, they, they teach them how to have committee meetings that violate the spirit of the Open Meetings Act. They basically do it up front and say, geez, if you meet, if you do it the right way, people are going to have access to what you're talking about. So do it this way. And they're, skirt, and they're skirting the law. And so we've, we've done some really nice reporting over there to hold them accountable. And then you'd think they've learned. But then this past summer, when we had the civil unrest in the wake of the George Floyd death, and there was you know, a little bit of rioting and fires and things, and the, the police response became uh, subject to you know, public attention, how the police responded, um, the police chief retired, quote unquote, retired. And it was, you know, that was their public statement. And Brad foiled the records, the departure records, and found out she was actually fired. And by being fired, she, you know, she got some payment to go away that she wouldn't have gotten if she retired. So these sort of things, this is why FOIA is necessary. So the citizens of Kalamazoo could see how their government is operating. And uh, this is why MLive does what it does and why FOIA is, even in its weakened form in Michigan, is so important to the, to the work we do. So any final thoughts on, on what's happening right now in Michigan and how we can improve it? I mean, I think it's, I, you know, I'll reiterate what I think we've talked about before, you know, if the public should care about this, um, and I think a lot of people do, but perhaps don't realize that they're just like, eh, you know, FOIA, I've heard about that. I don't necessarily know, but I think that, I think that, you know, especially once you get down to several of the community levels uh, that you uh, that you mentioned, you know, this is stuff that has a lot of impact on Michigan citizens. And if the information's not out there, it's just being done uh, behind closed doors. So I, I always encourage, um, you know, citizens um, who are interested in the stories that I do that require looking at public records to, you know, just start looking into it for themselves, get a little bit of an idea of, you know, some of the things that they could look for. Um, because, you know, as much as journalists would love to sit around foying things every day, um, you know, we don't necessarily always have the time to do that. And especially in my role, um, because uh, I cover the legislature, the legislature is not subject to it. I often use other means to try and get information. So, um, yeah, I, I always try to encourage members of the public uh, to care about this as much as journalists do. And I think I think a lot of people do and um, maybe just not in the same technical terms that we as, you know, you know, kind of forced experts of FOIA laws um, necessarily think about them in. But people care about government transparency. They care about things that their government does. And I think, as, as you said, John, um, I, I think that knowing more about uh, public records and having an easier avenue to get them would certainly make people trust their government a little bit more. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Lauren. Um, you know, I think that education of citizens is 
um, critical so that our elected officials um, understand what is going on. I'll tell a little anecdote in a, in a minute, but um, you know, I think we need more emphasis on basic civics, right? Um, you know, what do our you know three branches of government do? And that affects you and how is that supposed to work and what are what are checks and balances? Um, you know, in the the Traverse City case, the, the anecdote I was going to relate is, uh, you know, there was an election last year um, for school board members. Um, three were seeking re-election and had been involved in um, a controversial um series of events that implicated both FOIA and OMA. None of them were reelected, right? Um, you know, that tells you that citizens care about this, but they need to be educated both on transparency and accountability and what we should expect from the various branches of our government. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, um, I, I can tell you, I remember vividly in high school, a um, little bit younger than John, right? <laughs> um, you know, our government, our required government classes. My kids didn't have to have those sort of required government classes, you know? And, I, you know, I think we've, we've lost um, a lot of knowledge um, as a result. And, and so we're relying on um, other forces to teach people about their rights and um, what their expectations um, should rightfully be. Yeah, I think uh, people have come to trust, or I don't know if trust is the right word, but rely on other systems to function properly without them having to be involved. For instance, you're going up north, you're in the middle of nowhere and you your GPS, you don't have cell phone signal. It'd be nice to have some backup skills or knowledge about how to orient yourself. And I think with a fundamental uh, lack of education about civics in Michigan, people don't even know what their rights are, what's expected of them. And you know, we're happy to fill a role. Uh, I'm sure you are too, Robin, in, in this great experiment in democracy, but it'd be great if people also educated themselves and use these tools. And I'm always happy when a citizen comes forward and says, look what I found for my FOIA. I'm not jealous, I'm grateful. Um, it leads to some great stories. So. You know, to thank you very much for joining us today. To, to paraphrase George Harrison, here comes the sunshine week. Um, it's, it's always a holiday. I don't get any time off. Matter of fact, we work harder, but uh, we're, we're happy to do it. And thanks again for joining us today. And hey, Michigan, go out and celebrate transparency and go work for it. And there they go. Huge thanks to Lauren and Robin. That was an awesome conversation. I hope you dug it. As always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, subscribe, and share wherever you're listening to this podcast. Till next week, I am Eric Halkren. He is John Heiner. And this is Behind the Headlines.